Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is not a producer, but I think you're going to find him fascinating. His name is Tank the Tech, and you can find him on YouTube or really anywhere online. He is actually in the touring industry. He is a tech, uh, a tour manager. He's really, really done it all, a musician too. But the reason I wanted to have him on is because I love his YouTube channel, Basically, he tells the truth about the music industry and specifically about part of the music industry that nobody really hears too much about. You hear a lot about the record industry and about the importance of signing good record deals, but you don't hear much about the truth, the nasty truth of the touring industry. These days, Maybe you're hearing a little bit more than usual with the merch cut situation, which has become semi-viral, but there is so much more that goes into touring as far as uh, all the details that bring a tour together, all the different things that cost money, all the different streams of revenue that can make you money, all the different challenges involved with it. And Tank really, he really tells the truth about it. Some of... uh, My favorite videos that he's made are, for instance, how much money are bands really losing on days off? That's a really, really good one. Another one, are Avenged Sevenfold's bus costs really that bad? It's really, really good. It's really, really honest. And I think that if you want to tour or you work with touring artists, if you want to understand more of what's ahead of of you, like what's coming up, like what you have to look forward to, what you should be ready for, what does this all mean? I actually think that Tank's channel might be the best thing I've ever found on it. And those are big words, but uh, hey, that's how I feel. All right, let's get into this. I'm going to stop talking now. I introduce you, Tank the Tech. Tank the Tech, welcome to the URM podcast. 
Thank you so very much. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, pleasure to have you here. I uh, I know I told you this already, but um, reason I wanted to have you on here was because even though this podcast is mainly, you know, mainly I have producers on here, I've always tried to have just people that I find interesting who are in the in the music industry um, who have interesting perspectives on it. And I've been following your channel and you've been saying a lot of the things that I wish somebody would say, like they're conversations that I've had come up in podcasts with guests or that, you know, you have behind the scenes about a lot of the realities of this facet of life, I guess this being the, uh, the touring facet of life. But I think it's a lot of stuff that on the outset people don't understand and maybe they should understand it before trying to get into it because while I think it's a I think it's a great life if you're suited for it. I mean obviously I've made music my entire career uh and so I'm all for it, but I also know that it's not for everybody and there's several reasons for why it's not for everybody. You know, it could be that like you want to be an artist or you're not good enough to be an artist. It could be that you can't handle traveling. It could be that you're not good with social relation. There's all number, all manner of reasons. Maybe you don't have high risk tolerance or you're not good with instability. Like there's so many different aspects to this that are beyond just doing cool stuff with your friends. Um, mm-hmm. that I think it's really cool that, you get up there and you're basically telling the truth about the the good, the bad, and the ugly of what it's like. Man, I, I appreciate that because it's always been one of the things that I wanted to do with uh, this YouTube stuff ever since I started it. And I'll fully admit, like, I would say the first year and a half of my channel was was not what I wanted it to be. I always wanted this to be a behind-the-scenes music discussion, like talking about the realities of touring or talking about hot topics and touring. And there's a lot of music reactions and stuff in there too. You got to grow a channel. And that was, you know, that was a popular thing when I started. But I, I would say right now is when I'm really getting to the point where I feel comfortable and confident being able to talk about these things. And I think the one advantage that I have that maybe some artists or bigger artists wouldn't is that, um, I mean... I don't want this to sound like bad or anything, but I don't really have to watch what I say. I'm not signed with a record label. I'm not in the public Mm -hmm. face as as an artist or anything like that. I am a roadie and I can just sit and talk about my experiences and I'm not necessarily going to get the same kind of blowback that like an artist would if they were to say something that people don't agree with or something like that. So... You know, one of the things I did recently that I enjoyed doing a ton was when I did that video on... uh, breaking down uh, the cost of touring right now for bands, more specifically <laughs> the bus costs. And, <laughs> yep. pe- and people were like, why aren't artists talking about this? And I was like, well, they well, don't want to talk about their finances with you. That's one thing for sure. Yeah. But I believe that those are very important things, not just the bus costs, but other costs in the industry and how the industry works. Those are important things for fans to understand so that, that they can more humanize 
the bands that they like. Because in this industry, there is a lot of dehumanizing that goes on where people are placed on a pedestal. And I mean, you see it on social media where people go after artists and stuff like that. They don't think about the person behind that image. And I think that's going to help a lot of people if they understand the business side and understand the things that these artists go through when they're touring and when they're doing their jobs. I also think for the youngins who want to do this for a living, whether it is on the crew side or the artist side, it's important to know this stuff up front because, you know, I've personally seen bands who were very smart about it and were making a living very early on playing extreme music um, because they were smart about it and they understood how all this worked. Like, for instance, Black Dahlia Murder, they didn't start using buses until very late into their career. They could have been in a bus way early on because they were doing well very early on, but they stuck in vans for the most part for, I'd say, the first decade or more. And lo and behold, they have houses. Uh, like, they they were... Uh, they were paying for a normal life back home because they weren't wasting it all on, you know, on fleeting luxury, quote unquote luxuries. Because I don't think, honestly, I don't think a bus is as luxurious as people think it is. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's better than a van, but like, it's not always better than a van and hotels. It's like, let's just say, it's not as cool as people think it is. And when you see how much money you're losing, like that could be the difference between you owning a house or not owning a house or mm -hmm. like coming back from tour and having to get a job or coming back from tour and being able to just work on your band or whatever else. Yeah, man. And that's, that's the, the point about Black Dahlia Murder is great because the bus and all that stuff looks luxurious. I think a lot of people have been trained to, um, and not, not just people outside of the music industry, bands as well, especially young bands, We've kind of been trained to this idea that a bus or management or a label or something like that, that means you've made it. Those are the glamorous things that are the telltale signs that you've made it. And yeah, it's cool to tell your fans and tell your friends like, we're on a tour bus. But like you said, the reality of that is like, dude, there's so much money. Like I'm advancing a tour right now and it's so hard to find buses in North America for tours. And some of the quotes that I got back were unreal, dude. Like one of the quotes I got back from a bus company for this summer tour for, for a month long tour is like 60% of what my house costs. That's <laughs> insane, dude. Wow. Yeah. It's, so it's that, crazy. What, it, so that's like multiple times more than what it used to be. Oh, for sure. I yeah. mean, bus costs, even, even let's talk about like bandwagons, which are a, a good alternative for the bands that want to get a step above a van, but also save money. Mm -hmm. Bandwagons right now are like two to three times more than they cost three years ago. So if you're one of those bands that wants to save money by getting a bandwagon, so you have more space, but you don't want to go to a bus. Well, now the price of that bandwagon is what a bus was three years ago. So if you're looking at it in terms of a couple of years ago, you're not really saving money. Everything's just gone up exponentially. And I, you know, I've, that was one of the things I learned when I was younger. Um, I can't remember what band told us this, but they were like, stay in a van as long as you possibly can until you get to the point where if you're big enough to have a crew 
and you need to pull more gear and stuff like that, like stay in a van for as long as humanly possible because the second you move to a bus, A, you're going to get comfortable with it. You're not going to want to do anything else. And B, you're going to be sinking so much more money into it that you are going to come home from tours and wonder why you don't have money. Man, back... So before my band took our hiatus, so I'll just say round one, pre-hiatus, when we we do European tours and... As you know, like it's different when you're over there. So, you know, on a European tour, we'd get there and there'd be this 800,000 euro bus, you know, the double decker deal. And it'd be like, how, like, how is this? This doesn't make any sense. Like, we don't belong. I mean, cool, but we don't belong here. Then you go, we go back to the US and it's like slumming it. But the financial hit that we would take, from being on those European tours where it was a requirement to buy into that bus. It was, I I don't want to say what it was. It was ridiculous. And at the end of the day, you do get used to it. And so, yeah, going back, it would be like, oh man, the van again. But in all reality, even though the bus does get comfortable, it is a giant locker room. It is just a giant locker room that smells really, really bad. (laughs) And like, it's not that cool. It's really not that cool. When you factor the the cost of it versus what you get out of it, it's not that cool. Like the ego, the ego boost is not worth that amount of money. Yeah. And not to, not to mention the fact that like, depending on what your situation is on the bus, because I've been on buses where we've had maybe eight people on it. And then I've been, which is, you know, comfortable, but then I've been in situations where we've had like 14 people on it. And for anybody listening, a standard bus in the US and in North America is 12 bunks. And I, I believe that legally nobody is supposed to be sleeping in the front or back lounges if there's more than 12 people. But I've been in tons of situations where that happens. And then when you have 14 people on a bus like you said it's a locker room and there's people farting and there's people like you know there might be people smoking in the front or in the back and yeah it's it's not that's not better than a van like it's, no. it's just a big van in my opinion that's just a big van it's a it's, big van that has a tv <laughs> yeah that, you know, that, and, yeah basically and then the, you know again depending on the situation you know one of the worst ones i ever had in terms of a bus was, you know, most people are used to seeing the buses pulling the trailers and stuff like that. Well, I worked for a band once that wanted to save money. So they didn't pull a trailer. So they put all their gear in the bus bays underneath the bus, which Mm. means that there's no room for luggage. Yeah. So then the entire front and back lounges of the bus are loaded with merch and luggage. So there's nowhere to sit anyways. The only place you have to go or you have to go is your bunk. So... After a show, when you're done, you essentially get on the bus and there's no room on that bus anyways. And you just go straight to your bunk and you kind of can't do anything else anyways. So yeah, depending on the situation, it is not more glamorous or more or less glamorous than a van. And I, again, I, I think part of that is just that ego thing. It's like, it, it it is cool for bands to be like, look, we're on a tour bus, you know? But it's cool at first. It's cool when you first see it. Yeah. There's an ego side of it, but that's just not worth it. That's, that's all I think is like, yeah, it is cool. Like, because there's a status with it. And the thing 
the thing is that the status thing is not it's not as trivial as some make it out to be because mm-hmm. how you're perceived does have a lot to do with what kind of offers you're going to get and you know what kind of uh, uh what place and lineups you're going to have and not that yeah. whether you're in a bus or van is going to determine exactly what tour you get but every little thing contributes to perception and i think that like you know perception does become reality and so there's something to be said for it however it doesn't matter enough to where it's worth losing all that money in my opinion i i agree with that and you know i've i've seen this a lot with uh fans of bands where you know even when I was in a band, when I was young and we didn't know any better, like we were super impressed. Like when we did shows, when like a, a, a band yeah. would show up with a bus and we're like, wow, they're on a bus. Yeah, like seriously. That's, that's crazy. And um, I think some music fans are like that still too. They see that their favorite bands are on buses, but the problem, and I, I do think this is just a problem with understanding is fans will see their favorite bands like on a bus and then their mind automatically assumes that that band is doing very well financially and stuff like that. When, you know, the reality of, of that is a bus is sometimes necessary. So like if you're, if you're a band of five people and you're carrying, you know, six or seven crew people and you have a lot of gear that you need to pull in a bigger trailer, it's like sometimes logistically that can't be done without a bus. And that's, that's the situation I'm in right now. Tour managing a tour is like, these guys did not want to bring out a second bus, but logistically for the amount of people that they have in their crew and for the amount of gear that we want to bring on the tour, like, unfortunately it's necessary. Just is what it is. I mean, yeah, the, but the other option would be get, bringing a truck out or, or something like that, mm-hmm. but that's still financially like, you know, I do the numbers and it's like, you're not going to save much more money by having a truck out and hiring a driver and paying for gas and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's an interesting conversation because when I was in a band, we never had a bus. Like we, we were, we didn't even have a 15 passenger. We were in a Chevy Astro van and a secondhand trailer that we bought from a boy scout group in our local area. (laughs) And, uh, and you know, I, I will say some of the best times I've ever had were in that van. I mean, yes, it's not glamorous and we we didn't make a lot of money and we s- slept in that van most nights, just five of us guys and stuff like that, you know, at Walmarts and truck stops and rest stops. But even though now for the last like 12 years of my touring career working for bands, I've been in buses, I still wouldn't trade any of that time. I had some of the funnest, best life experiences just traveling around in a van and trailer. Same. Yeah. It, it, I I definitely don't regret that time period at all. And um, I see it as formative. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I feel like the things that you learn on that level of touring are the things that uh, translate into you knowing how to do it right. I, I think that being good at touring involves being good at improvising a lot. You don't know what's going to happen that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to react really, really fast and solve situations. Some of them are predictable. Some of them happen, you know, some of them, you know, 
you know are going to happen like eight out of the 30 shows. But, you know, there's always going to be some uh, some curveballs thrown your way and you, you got to improvise. And I think that the uh, the van touring stage is where you develop the uh, the mental acuity to to deal with that. And like the fortitude, the emotional fortitude to not flip out uh, because, you know, some people cannot handle it when the curveballs happen. Mm -hmm. For instance, I remember once in 2007, we were in a wreck, like in a blizzard in Iowa. And somehow, even with the wreck and that happening that day, we still ended up making it to the show, not with the van or with our gear, but we still made it to the show. Somehow we were able to like walk off of the highway and walk to some place in the middle of a blizzard and like get our stuff towed. Like it was a whole, it was one of those crazy ass situations where eventually we did make it to the show though, 15 minutes before set time and had worked it all out to where we could use somebody else's gear and did the show. And those types of, those types of scenarios in the van setting, I think prepare you for, being able to tour at a higher level. Like you got to go through that shit in order to, I think, be able to handle the pressure at a higher level. Uh, Dude, I have joked so many times that anybody in the music industry, whether you're a, a band or a crew member or whatever, I've always said that people should be required to do in a van and trailer before they do anything else, like it, bus, bandwagon, whatever, because I, I agree with everything you're saying. There's something about van and trailer touring that mentally prepares you for what the road is really like. And similarly to you guys, we were on a tour once when I was still in a band around yeah, 2007, 2007, eight, something like that, where um, we also got into a wreck coming out of the mountains in Washington in the middle of the winter. Oh, fun. Um, And it was one of those situations where like, we were coming out of the mountains and our axle on our trailer snapped. And I felt like a lurch. I was driving and I felt like a lurch. And the next thing I see is the wheels from our trailer flying past us in the rear view mirror and then flying past our van. So we're dragging the trailer down like I-90 in a, in a blizzard. I was going to say, was it flying past you because you were turned around? Because for uh, because in my situation, I saw the trailer in front of us, but that's <laughs> because we were jackknifed and spinning. Oh, wow. No, no. This was, we were going downhill out of the mountains. So I was already kind of trying uh, okay, to go slow. It. And our tires just took off by us. So Man, that's I had treacherous. To get, get us to, down the mountain, dragging our trailer. You know, the van was fine; it was the trailer. But that when I'm, the situation is, we're broke down on the side of the road. We have to figure out what to do. So we called like a trucking company to with a box truck to come get our stuff. We left the trailer on the side of the road to get it uh, picked mm-hmm. up later. And in our minds, we're like, this can't be fixed. We're in Seattle, like you know. 2,500 miles from home, we have to buy a new trailer right now. That's an expense that we didn't mm-hmm. account for at all. So we get to the show. It was at, you're probably familiar with the venue, uh, El Corazon in Seattle. Yep. Um, we play our show. Like we got everything there. But then that night we couldn't load out because we had no trailer. So my guitar player and I called a trailer place that was down in like Olympia. So like an hour away to buy a trailer. But the guy said he couldn't sell it to us uh, like for a few, he goes, 
I, I understand it's an emergency situation, but I'm not there right now because it's after hours. So I can't get there until like midnight. You're going to have to pay more for me coming in. Our band sat outside Elcor Zone on the sidewalk with our gear for like five hours mm -hmm. while me and my guitar player went and got a new trailer and then had to bring it back. So those are the situations that it's like, like you don't plan for that financially and, you know, you know, sitting on the side of the road with your gear like that. But those are the moments that we look back on now and we're like, we, we, we earned our stripes that day as a van and trailer band. We learned a lot that day about how some of this stuff is going to work. Yeah. That reminds me so much of, uh, <laughs> we had a, it was, um, we were doing Ozfest and we could not afford, uh, like you had to have a bus, but somehow we managed to get in without one. I don't know. They made it an exception that year and they let bands do it in a van and, or like in those like airport shuttle bus things, yeah. which is essentially a van. Yeah. Um, and the one that we got was really, really, we had to have it because you needed a little bit of extra crew for, for that, because you literally had a five minute changeover. Like, yeah. and you, like, you know, 20 minute set, five minute changeover. If, uh, you know, if you take seven minutes, then your set is uh, 18 minutes long. Mm -hmm. if, it, if it took, you know, like it, it, there was zero room for error and you had to bring like X amount of crew. Like, you know how those tours work. Like oh, there's yeah. no room for, I guess, negotiation with any of that stuff. So it was a miracle that they let the smaller bands not get buses. All we could afford was one of those airport shuttle buses. And one of the off shows was at the old house of blues in West Hollywood. Oh yeah. Um, remember that? The, how yeah. there was that hill right next. Yes. Okay. So like that's where the driver parked it after load loading. And then um, when it came time to load out, like the thing just wouldn't move. It couldn't like get, up. there was a barrier in front of it. Like they had those barriers in the street. So it couldn't go down the hill, but it couldn't reverse up the hill and when he tried to like gun it to really try to get it to go up the hill the engine just exploded that's that like it's dead on a friday night at a friday night at midnight we got to be at the next ozfest show at like 9 a.m the next day like 800 miles away yeah and it was one of those scenarios of like it's midnight we're like on the most important thing we've ever done in our entire lives. Like we can't, we can't fuck this up. Like it's fucking Ozfest, and we have no way to get to the next show. It's fucking Friday at midnight. Like, what are we going to do? Um, and like, also what are we going to do with this vehicle? That's just like right here in the middle of a city street. It, like, how's that going to get out of there? Like, there is a physical barrier preventing it from being moved. Like what's going to even tow this thing out of there? Anyways, we figured it out. We got it. We, we didn't miss a show, but like having to think through that kind of stuff makes it, it I really do think it makes it to where you can handle just about anything that's going to come up later. Cause nothing, nothing that comes up at the higher levels of touring in my experience it could be, there's more on the line in terms of, yeah, there's more money on the line. So there's more of that kind of pressure. But in terms of like just reality of there's no 
well, there's no way out of this situation unless you kind of invent something. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything like that at the higher levels of touring because there's money involved and money yeah. solves problems. Um, so anytime that I've been on a bigger tour where there's been a problem, like the same kind of problem, the, the money in the situation has solved it. Yeah. But I think that the cooler heads prevailing at, at those higher levels come from having had the experiences of solving those problems where there is no money. There is no money and you don't know what the fuck to do. Like yeah. you don't know how you're going to solve this. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's things now that as a tech that may happen during the day with gear or something like that, I've definitely solved problems by doing it the same way I would have done as a broke 18 year old yep. that was in my band, just because I've been in those situations before. And if, and, and in my mindset is like, if this is going to, what's going to work in the moment and make this happen, I don't care how it gets done. Like this is what we're going to do. And I, I really, really quick. I want to take, take this back to what we were talking about, about, uh, you know, the mental fortitude and like learning things in a van and trailer and stuff like that before you get to a bus. There was a band that we toured with way back in the day. I would love to tell you who it is because it would make the story, but I don't know how you are about name dropping on here, but... Not, not um, great. What's that? Not, not that into it. Okay, even cool. Though. I'll tell you later and it'll okay, be yeah, funny. Okay, tell me later. Um, so we toured with this band uh, years ago and this was like 2007 or so and... Um, there was, there was a, a pretty big rock band from the LA area that used to take my band out on tour, which was really cool for us because we were an unsigned band and they were very kind to us and stuff. But this band blew up from their first single, like platinum first single they ever released. And this is in the early two thousands when, you know, records were still selling and there's yeah. still a lot of money and stuff like that. So these guys blew up so fast that they were never in a van. They were multiple buses and a semi, like on their very first tour. Wow! And they toured in van or bus, or they toured in buses for years. Well, later in their career, when we were touring with them, they started going on a decline. Like this mm -hmm. band used to do, like amphitheaters and arenas. And when we were touring with them, they were like House of Blues size clubs. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was you know that happens, man. Sometimes bands kind of start dropping out a little. And the first tour we did with them, they were in a bus and trailer. And then the next tour we did with them, they showed up in a van and trailer. And we were like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Like, and we were friends with some of the band members and they were just like, yeah, financially, we just, we have to travel in a van and trailer now. But their singer didn't travel in the van and trailer. He got a hotel every night and flew to every single show every day while the rest of his band and crew drove cross country in the van. Oh, that's a recipe for uh, good relationships right there. Dude. And I was like, <laughs> I asked one of their band members, I was like, why? I feel like he's probably spending more money doing that. And they're like, he mentally cannot handle traveling, traveling in a van and trailer. That's why he's doing it. And he goes, because we never did. We were never in a van and trailer. We've gone our whole career in buses. And the second we had to go to a van and trailer, he just couldn't handle it. And that's why I think it is very important as a band when you're young to have those experiences in vehicles that aren't buses and be in those situations that get you used to just the rigors of the road, like roughing it out. Because like you said, some mentally, some people just, they, they can't handle the road in certain situations. 
Yeah, and look, if uh, if you're a band that blows up immediately, mm-hmm. it does happen, and somehow you manage to keep that the whole your entire career. Wow, cool. But that is just not the norm. This mm-hmm. so that's so like that's such an anomaly. Yeah, I mean, I we all know of examples like that. But that's absolutely not what somebody should count on happening. Like, if it happens, awesome. But uh, do not count on it. And also, don't count on it lasting. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to you about this. Not too many people that I've spoken to can relate to this just because I haven't known that many people who have done the touring thing and then also branched out. There's some, but not, not that many. Basically, so my band was active from like 2006 to 2010, signed like Roadrunner and Century Media, all this did all kinds of stuff, went on hiatus back now. However, in that hiatus is when I started URM and, you know, did all my production work and just did a bunch of stuff. And the reason for all that, well, I always wanted to do a lot of stuff, but I remember being on tour in those days. And because we did get signed to Roadrunner out the gate, which was kind of a miracle, like they, they shouldn't have signed us. Like we had no business being on that label. Um, and I knew they were going to drop us uh, on the first record. It was uh, my, the conversation was, do we go with an indie label or do we just get on Roadrunner knowing we're going to get dropped within uh, an album, but take the momentum from being on Roadrunner. Cause in 2006, that was uh it meant a lot. So decided yeah. to get on Roadrunner knowing we're going to be on an indie next time around. But anyhow, being on Roadrunner got us some opportunities that wouldn't have come up otherwise. So we got to be around much bigger bands, hence Ozfest and stuff. So I remember sitting around on buses and hanging out with all these bands that are far bigger than my band and just paying attention and thinking, okay, so this is best case scenario right here. Th- these dudes have best case scenario. This is if everything goes right, this is what it's like. How cool is this? I don't know. It's not that cool. Uh, like, how much cooler is it than our situation? Yes, it's cooler. Yes, ab- it's absolutely cooler. But is it like a thousand times cooler? Nah. Is it like twice as cool? It's more than twice as cool, but it's not like a thousand times cooler. And what about, what do I predict any of these people doing if like, it turns out that like someone in the band does something really fucked up and the band has to stop or Mm -hmm. somebody dies or the fans don't like them anymore or like they get injured or like any of these things that, I just mentioned that we all know have happened to our friends. Like, what if this stops? Like, what what are these dudes going to do? And I was trying to predict, like, I remember thinking, Nurgle from Behemoth, he's going to be fine. He'll just start a fashion company or, like, become a politician. That dude's going to be fine. Jamie from Hatebreed, that dude is going to be fine. And, I mean, like, look at how many different things that guy's ended up doing. But oh, yeah. out of all those people, like, I could only count on one hand, the amount of people I thought would be fine if the band ended. And I was thinking to myself, all these musicians are squandering this incredible opportunity that they have because this is not going to last forever. And 
they all have this platform upon which they can build an actual career that can sustain them for the rest of their lives and they're not doing it. And uh, it's kind of sad. And I think that they're living in this fantasy that this shit's going to last forever and it's not going to last forever. And they need to be thinking about what's next. So for me, I was always thinking about what's next and was able to transition. But what do you think about where you see musicians headspaces at these days about the bigger picture like that? Because man, when I used to see it, it was, uh, it was bleak. Man, that's it's such an interesting thing you bring up because that is really quick before I get into that. That's not that's not something I thought about until I was older. When I was young touring, I, I was like, this is gonna go forever. I'm just gonna work for bands. And I'm t- I'm not talking about being in a band because I quit a band to become a roadie. Cause I I actually, in a weird way, enjoy working for bands more than I ever enjoyed being in a band. Mm-hmm. I had that mentality that this is gonna go forever. I never thought about what if this ends one day and I have to find something else to do. I never thought about it. Then I started getting older and I started thinking about it. And then luckily I'd thought about that enough that like when the pandemic happened, we all got sent home with no warning. We literally loaded in for a show one day with everything fine. And then at the end of that show, tour managers, like we're all going home and we're not working. And that was my moment where I was like, surprise. Yeah. That was my moment where I was like, what do I do? And I've talked to this to my wife about this with my wife for years. It's like, I don't have what a lot of people look for in normal, what we would call a normal job. I, I didn't finish my degree at college. I quit. I dropped out to be in a band. I mean, as a roadie, am I, I, I'm suited to maybe go be a manager at a guitar center. Like, so those are the things mm-hmm. I started thinking about as I got into like my mid twenties. And what I started doing was networking like crazy. I started making connections everywhere to the point where I've not taken them at this point, but I've gotten offers to be A&R rep for like big gear companies. I've got offers to work at labels. And those are the things that I thought were important that go along with what you're saying. What happens after this road life is done? And to go back to your question, even for me, man, not a lot of bands I've worked for, I don't think they've really thought about it either because... There are some bands I've toured with that definitely have side hustle going on where they're, they are aware like this may not last forever and I need to set myself up. So for example, like in the country music industry, I spent six years before the pandemic working for the same artist in, in country in Nashville. And a lot of his uh, like hired gun players all do different things outside of touring. A couple of them are producers that work on a lot of stuff in town. Uh, his drummer was a session guy for a lot of other people. Like they had their hands in a lot of different things, not just one artist. But a lot of the bands I've worked for, like rock and metal bands and stuff like that, it's usually the bands that aren't thinking about that kind of stuff. They think that you know, our career is our band. This is it. This is going to be forever. This is going to pay for the rest of our lives. And that the sad truth about that is that even if you are a pretty successful band, that's probably not going to happen. Like you got to be Slipknot. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, if you're Nickelback or you're Slipknot or you're like, in, if you're in metal, you have to be an arena or amphitheater headlining sized band to be, I guess what you would say, like comfortable for life. Anything below that, 
dude, it could stop at any minute and you're going to be back to trying to find a normal nine to five job if you don't have something that you've been thinking about. So I will say lately, especially in the past year, I think the pandemic kind of forced everybody to get into a mindset of, ooh, what else can I do here? And that's why we see a lot of artists now that have gone... Uh, there's a lot of artists more than ever right now that are in content creation. You see artists streaming on Twitch all the time. You see artists doing uh, YouTube videos and stuff like that. Um, we've got guys like um, like Nolly from Periphery, mm-hmm. like one of my favorite bass players. Like, dude has his hands in so many things now because he enjoys production and and stuff like that. And there are certain musicians in the metal community that have now built names for themselves as themselves away from the band. But I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. If you don't build a name for yourself outside of your actual band, you're not really going to have much to fall back on if something like you mentioned happens. If like, Because everything could be gone like that. It could. I've seen it happen. Just, just done. Oh, yeah. And if you don't have something to fall back on, I, I mean, it, it's... <laughs> your choices are going to be very limited. Yeah, the thing about a band too is like you are hinging your future on the behavior of the other people in your band. And if one of them does something super fucked, like it could be over for all of you overnight, Mm -hmm. just like that. And there's any other number of things that could happen. But yeah, it could disappear Blink of an eye. It's crazy how fast it can go away. Yeah. I think that uh, well, Nolly is a fantastic example. Honestly, man, Periphery are like, in my opinion, the the gold standard for how it should be done. Mm-hmm. Hey, everybody! If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix a song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep 
super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. I mean, every single one of those guys has their hands in other things outside of the band. I, I think they understand that, the, like you said, the band doesn't may not be forever, but if they can continue work on other things like in the industry and stuff like that, I mean, all of those guys, every single one of them are, are doing tons of other stuff. And, you know, along with what you're saying about, let's say somebody in your band does something horrible because we all know if one person in a band does something, it's going to reflect the whole band. It's not going to reflect one person. It's 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 going to reflect the whole band. That's how I treat being a roadie. Because when I'm working for a band, I am representing that artist. If I I and I I I usually tell new crew people this when I'm in a like a leadership role on a tour whether I'm a tour manager or crew chief or whatever. If we have a new crew person, I'm like always keep in mind that whatever you do you are representing the artist you work for. If you're a, a, a dick to an opening band, they're not going to say, hey, you know, that tank guy's a dick. It's going to be so-and-so's guitar tech yep. who's a dick. And by association, then that story is going to turn into, oh, that band and their crew are dicks, even if it was just one person. So that's why it's very important, even in a role like mine, to to understand that anything I say or do is going to reflect on the artist that I'm working for as well. So essentially, me doing something horrible could impact that person's career, even though I'm just working for them and I'm not even in the band. Yep, absolutely. That's a very, very important thing to understand. I actually, I want to talk about something you mentioned earlier, uh, because this is something that I've brought up a lot that it's like a message I want to put out there that I've been trying to put out there. You said that you enjoy working in crew more than you enjoyed being in a band. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a, like a great thing to have figured out because, um, because I think that it's really important in music, especially that you figure out who you are and what it is that, you can be best at and that like you can do and like really put yourself into because that's uh because if you're trying to be like, say you're trying to be in a band, but like, that's not what you're actually truly passionate about. There's other reasons for why you want to be in a band. You want to travel for a living or whatever. Like there's any number of things say like there's, you know, the professional luthier types, the types who love working on building, fixing guitars. Like I would never want to do that. That sounds like the worst thing on earth to me. Like I love playing, but thank God for luthiers and techs. Like seriously. Um, But the thing is the best ones I know are not interested in being players. Like Mm -hmm. their passion is 
working on the instrument. And uh, it's just this level of precision and that's what they find their Zen in. And, and by figuring that out um, about themselves, uh, they're able to like really pour themselves into their passion and make great careers out of it. And the same thing goes for, you know, sometimes you get these producers who started as band members and they realized like, I hate touring. Like I mm-hmm. don't, like I don't enjoy being in a band. Like what I like is being part of the creation process and it doesn't even have to be my music. Like they figure that out about themselves and then end up having a great career as a producer. And the reason I'm saying that it's important to realize this is because I think a lot of people have this weird idea that if you don't become a rock star, you're a failure. And Mm -hmm. it's like, it's a binary thing. It's like, you're either huge or you're shit. And the reason it's called the music industry is because it's a whole industry with Mm -hmm. thousands of different ways to, uh, to contribute and be a part of it. And there's not just one road, one fulfilling, awesome road you can go down. But I think it's very, very important to uh, to be very honest with yourself. Because, like, for instance, say you want to be a guitar player, but you're really not that into getting good. But, like, you're, you know, you're into those virtuoso types. And, like, that's what you think you want. But you're not willing, you're not willing to practice six or eight hours a day. Like you're good with 30 minutes, but you're like putting up Instagram videos of playing solos and like, that's what you want to be. Like, clearly there's a dissonance there. Mm-hmm. Like clearly your, your efforts don't match your ambitions for some reason. Uh, what is that reason? And usually the reason is you really don't want that. Like is you want something in music, but it's not that, and you haven't done the mental work to figure out what it is. It's not that you're a lazy person. It's that you're, you're kind of going down the wrong path for yourself. Like you think this is what you want. It's not actually what you want. You should ask, you should sit down and actually uh, take a little bit of inventory and figure out what, uh, what is it that I'm actually going for here? Cause I've noticed that people who do that, that they will figure out, Oh yeah, I, I don't actually want to be a guitar virtuoso. If I did, I'd be practicing eight hours a day. Like when I had John Petrucci on the riff hard podcast, I asked him, like a listener question, how, how do you get motivated to practice? And he said exactly what I thought he was going to say. I don't have to get motivated to practice. Of course he doesn't have to get motivated to practice. Like that's just what he does. Mm -hmm. So I think that if someone wants to be in music and they're not just like into the thing that they're going for, they need to ask themselves why, like why is there something else that like still in music that, you might be better at or better suited for, or that you're actually into. Cause like, like you said, you realized the crew life is what you're into. Not, not the band life. Yeah. And from a young age, I knew I wanted to do something in music, but with, you know, us growing up and seeing all these rock stars and stuff like that. The only thing I understood when I was younger was band. Like, you want to be, you know, we see all our favorite uh, artists on the covers of magazines and music videos. And you're, I think at that age, I didn't understand that there was more to the industry than just being in a, in a band. So don't get me wrong. I enjoyed playing. 
I, 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 I still sure, play. I, I have my guitars or my basses here. I, I play a lot, but the original thing that got me away from being in a band was that if I'm being honest, I was just tired of being broke all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we toured for, you know, three, four years straight in a van and trailer. And I kid you not, I try and emphasize this to people. I was the most broke in that four-year period of my life I've ever been. I'm talking, there were days where I would have to borrow like $2 from a, a band member that actually had money to like get get a McDonald's double cheeseburger to mm-hmm. eat. Like I had no more than like $10 in my pocket at all times. And that is a very difficult, stressful way to live. And I, I was kind of talking about this with a band that we were opening for, like the, the assigned band. And I was like, I'm thinking about just quitting. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if I'm going to go back to school. I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. And they were like, if you quit your band, come work for us. We'd hire you to be on your crew. We've, we've seen how you are on the road. Like it might be a big change for you not being in a band anymore, but we would take you on the road with us. And I made that decision. I quit my band and I went and started working for a band. And I kid you not, on that first day ever working for a band, it, it hit me that, that this is what I need to do in music. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I am tailored to work for bands, not be in a band or be a rock star. Like I, I get more joy out of working for a band than I ever got playing on stage. And I know that's probably sounds weird to some people, but not to me. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. There's, there's something about being trusted and being relied upon where a band knows that they are not going to have to worry about anything all day, except for going on stage and putting on a good show. They know their gear is going to be good. They know like there's something about that feeling. That's like a, you know, I could have the most stressful day in my life at a show setting up. And then the second that show starts, if the band is happy, I'm like, yeah, (laughs) like my whole day is better. Like I love Mm -hmm. it. And you know, there wasn't one necessary. There wasn't necessarily one specific thing I wanted to do. I was open to learning new things. A lot of people I know in the industry that are that work for bands, they go in with one thing. They're like, "I'm a drum tech," or "I'm an audio engineer," or "I'm a lighting director." When I first got hired by a band, I got hired to be a lighting director because I did lights at a club outside of the uh, Chicago where I grew up. But then they were like, "Hey, we need a merch guy. Do you think you could do that?" And I was like, "Yeah, why not?" And then it turned into, hey, we really we wish we had somebody that could tech our instruments. Could you do that? Yeah, sure. Why not? So like, I just started learning every little thing I could on the road to the point where that opened up my opportunities so much because I started getting this experience doing other things. I mean, people know me as like, like Tank the Tech now, like I'm a, I'm a guitar tech. But the first half of my career... I was pretty much doing merchandise for anything from like club bands to like stadium sized bands, just merchandise. And then I slowly started changing and getting into different things. I was a bass and a drum tech for a while. I've tour managed bands. I've staged managed bands. And and now I'm mostly guitar teching, but also tour managing. And, you know, that's one of the big things I tell people too, is like, always be open to learning these different things on the road because you never know what band is going to ever give you that opportunity or need something. And knowing all these different things is going to help with that. And uh, the honesty, you know, or honestly, I've enjoyed every little thing because there is a weird 
totem pole kind of thing on the road where like as as a merchandise manager, I'm kind of towards the bottom. Even on large tours, like I've been talked down to because, oh, you're just the merch guy. Or if somebody wants to uh, insult uh, oh, me. Ju- just, the, just the guy that handles all the income pretty yeah. much. And, yeah. and I've I've been insulted by what I would say, a regular person that's not in the music industry. I've mm-hmm. had people on my YouTube when I talk about the tours I've done merchandise on. They're like, oh yeah, you've toured with this big arena band, but you were just the merch guy. They say it like it's an insult. It's it's funny because if they only knew, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say it on camera for like secure security reasons, but if they only knew what that actually, the reality of doing merch for an arena band is. <laughs> and not only that, yeah. but I'm like, you think that's an insult calling me just the merch guy? I'm the only person on this entire tour that's not an expense I'm 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 making the band money. Yep. Everybody else is an expense. Audio engineer, lighting director, guitar tech, and a needed expense. But I'm making money for this band every night selling merch. So like none of those insults ever phase me. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> like, you know, the bands have always treated me like I'm an integral part of their tour and it's fine. And, you know, they're they're I I don't know. It's just funny. I see that totem pole. Like even even nowadays. You get uh, what's very popular on tour is like tour videographers and photographers because everybody's about that social media content. And there are people that I've seen that have tried to knock down like tour videographers a peg where they're like, like, you're not a part of the show. All you do is take pictures and video. And the reality that I've seen with tour videographers, they, they might not put in the physical work that other people do. But most of the tour videographers I've ever seen are putting in the most hours. Like oh, yeah. every night I would go to bed on my last tour, our our tour videographer was still up working. And I'd get up in the morning and that person is already up on their computer working and editing. Like it's, you know, these jobs that seem menial to the normal person are sometimes extremely important to that operation. And they're also not understanding they're I guess they're not putting a human element to uh, how they get the things that they consume, which is kind of a, you know, you could make a bigger, a bigger point about that with our, uh, with our culture, not, not appreciating the human element of where we get the things that we consume, Mm -hmm. but people are used to just wearing band shirts or, getting on Instagram and seeing a tour video and not even thinking about the fact that a human put that together. Like yeah. that didn't just spontaneously generate. Someone had to make that. And uh, with bands that are on tour and you see a new video, like every single day, like where do you think that's coming from? You think that yeah. that's like AI generated? Like there is a person who is making that shit and uh, that shirt you're wearing, um, it didn't just poof appear yeah. out of nowhere. I think, I think that like people don't like, they don't connect with where stuff comes from. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, same way that we, we try not to think about where our iPhones come from and what's in them, like all the way to where people don't think about who's making an Instagram video for, of a tour, uh, you know, of a, of a show from a tour or whatever, like, they don't see that and they don't value it, which I think is, uh, 
It's kind of sad, but it is reality. People just don't connect with where things come from. Yeah, and 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 in terms of the video stuff, the most mind blowing thing to me is, you know, people write it off because it's like, dude, it's a thirty second video. It's like, do you know how much footage <laughs> that videographer shot to make that? I mean, you're talking hours of footage yeah. that they have shot all day that they are then going to have to skim through just to find the clips for that thirty seconds. It's a lot of work, and. You know, even going back to merchandise, it's like people think that, um, you know, know, merch, you you just sell shirts. Okay. Well, what you're not seeing is that on some of those tours, when I was a merchandise manager, I, I advanced everything. I would do an advance with the venue. So I knew it was going on. I was getting show tra- contracts from the, uh, from the booking agents. So I knew what the merch fees were because I, I believe that is a very important thing that a lot of bands and merchandise managers aren't doing. My day would start at like 9am. I'd get in the semi, I'd, I'd start pulling the merch, like not to mention the fact that I had already done a projection the night before when I was staying up. Pull the merch that's needed. Then you got to count it all in. Then you got to display everything. And then once all that's done at the end of a show, I'm up for two hours on my computer doing accounting. Every job on the road, whether it's the merchandise manager, the videographer, the techs, the audio engineers, the bus drivers, the caterers, everybody has a way bigger role than I think the normal person would actually think. And I think that it's... Honestly, at the end of the day, there's an element of it where, and I noticed this as a producer, uh, both as a producer and an artist, I've had the experience of like spending a long time writing a part and, you know, put so much work into it. And then the producer just cuts it out of a song and like, it like stings a little, it did at first. Um, like, God, I put so much time into this, so much time. And I remember the first time it happened, the producer was like, yeah, but nobody cares. Like, they only care if they like the song. They don't care how much time you spent on it. And I, like, I tried really hard to, like, get myself comfortable with the idea. And still to this day that, like, no matter how hard I work on something or how many hours I put in, on the other end, nobody's going to see that and nobody's going to care about that. They're only going to care about do they like this thing or not like this thing? Do they resonate with this thing or not resonate with this thing? The end. And I think that with what goes into the work on tour, really all the concert goer cares about is, are they having a good time or not? Mm -hmm. And I think that them not noticing any of those other things means that uh, the crew did a fantastic job. Like is if it's a seamless experience for the person Coming to the show, like everything from buying their shirt to just experiencing the show itself. And they don't, they're not even thinking about the crew or anything else. That means the crew is on their game. And so, in some ways, that means that by definition, doing a great job at it means no one's going to know that how what went into it. And in some ways, like that's not the job for them to know what went into it. The job is for the concert goer to have the best you know, the best experience possible. So like, I think that there is a thankless side of it that people need to be comfortable with, which I think is tough for some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And and I, and I fully understand that as somebody who's worked for bands for years now, it's like, 
That's why this whole YouTube thing is kind of weird for me now, because in a general sense, roadies always were, were, were support actors. Like, you know, and, and for anybody listening, I mean, you know this, but like, it is very rare that a live show happens with a hundred percent efficiency. Oh almost, yeah. Almost every night, there's something that goes wrong that our entire job is to make sure that it gets fixed without affecting noticeably affecting the show. So, and that even goes for band members. I've had band members that walk off stage that are like, Oh, I messed up this one part in this one song. I was like, do you think anybody other than you or the crew noticed that? No, nobody in the crowd is going to notice that. And you know, that's one big thing that I always tell bands I work for, like don't beat themselves up because expecting a hundred percent perfection is just setting yourself up for disappointment because it's, it's, it's unattainable in live anything. Like it, it's just mistakes happen. Technology isn't perfect. You know, I always uh, joke about the fact that like as a guitar tech, for example, I feel like I really, what I'm really getting paid for is to fix things, not set them up or, you know, make sure they're good. But when something goes down, yes. like let's say a pedal board goes down during a show or something like that, where I really earn my money is when I can calmly and efficiently fix that problem so it doesn't affect the show in a big way. And I mean, that's, I enjoy that. I, I love that. I love being a part of that show. And I love it even more when, you know, fans don't notice that something happened. And what I was, what I was getting at is the, the stereotypical support role of a roadie. What's been interesting for me doing this YouTube thing is that you know, maybe some diehard fans of bands know who their crew is that have been there for a while. Like, yeah, you know, I've worked for some bands for years where it's like you start seeing the same faces at shows yeah. that, you know, and they know the crew. They know the crew by name. They'll say hi, stuff like that. But overall, most roadies don't have a platform. They don't have a name to the face. They are, we understand we're not the band. Like, I understand that it should not be expected that people would know who I am. They're there to see the band. And this YouTube thing has kind of turned that around, which is very... I'm still getting used to it. I'm not used to it at all. On my last tour, which I just got home from like a week ago, there were probably a couple dozen people every night after every show when the band was off stage and we started tearing down that were like yelling at me. And asking for pictures and be like, you'd have other people that had no idea that I was out there. Like, Dude, that's that guy from YouTube. And I'm like, this is weird. It's cool. Don't get me wrong. But it's like, it's weird because most roadies don't have that kind of attention. But also when I'm on the tour, I'm not the YouTube guy. Like I'm, my mindset is I'm there to work for the You're band. doing your job. Yeah. So there is kind of a weird separation where... I, I've had to tell some people, like guys, I, I I'm working right now. I can't come hang. I can't like, I'm not, I'm not the guy from YouTube. I'm literally teching right now. But it has been fascinating to see that happen because I'm just not used to it at all. Do you like it? Yes and no. If I'm being honest, yes because I mean, let's let's be honest. Who wouldn't? I mean, people, people like to be noticed and recognized. And that's just, I think that's human nature. Totally. But when I'm in that element of working, 
I, I kind of don't like, I appreciate that those people recognize me and, and, and are like, wow, that's cool. Like we watch him on YouTube and here he is working for band. But at the same time, like I said, I'm in full on work mode. I'm, I, I want to do my job. There's something great about also being a roadie where like, where I, I, I can just do, nobody's going to be, nobody's going to be excited that the guitar tech's walking across the stage, moving a case. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's always been a cool thing with that, where it's like, I can do my job and not have to worry about anything going on around me. But with this now, it has been like, we start a changeover and there's a handful of people that are just yelling already. And it's, um, in a certain aspect, it is cool. But in the other aspect of it, it's like, I would still love to just work and not have anybody say anything. <laughs> you know well, what I mean? I, I think, yeah, I think that what you're doing is a, is a really positive thing for the industry, actually. Because one thing I noticed that after the pandemic was a lot of people would be hitting me up. Do you know any front of house people? Do you know uh, we need a TM now? Like this didn't used to happen before the pandemic, but like real, you know, like big bands would be hitting me up like in desperation, trying to find someone for a role that previously they would never have to struggle to find. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's a, it's a, it's an important thing right now to be, you know, kind of like, I guess, shining some light on these jobs. Cause I think that people are going to see that it's actually pretty cool and it'll help draw, I guess, some qualified people towards the profession because uh, the level of bands that have, that I've been getting like emergency calls from it, it's, it's a little alarming. Yeah. How many of them are like out a tour manager or something. Yeah, I mean, and it's and it's that that again that effect of like the pandemic happening where people were forced to be in that situation of what do I do now? Now a lot of these people that were lifelong crew and touring, they have found other jobs at home and they've discovered that they like being at home, so a lot of them didn't go back out on the road and yep. you know, when uh, our daughter was born a couple of years ago, I decided like I talked to my wife and I was like even when touring comes back full time, I want to stay at home. I want to be here when she's growing up just because I, I mean, since, since 2020, when everything shut down, I've spent more time with my wife in the last three years than I have in the last 10 because I've been home. And luckily the YouTube thing has allowed me to stay home, but people in Nashville knew that I wasn't going on the road. Like they, they knew that I was staying at home and I still today get phone calls every single week from everything from club to arena size touring bands that are like, dude, we are in a bind. We need a tech right now. Are you available? And I'm like, no, like I'm, I'm at home. And they're like, do you know anybody? And I was, and the honest answer is a lot of the tech friends that I knew that were touring are not touring anymore. It is really difficult right now to actually find people to work in the industry. And it's, you're seeing it at, at every level, not so everyone, just everyone listening. Uh, there is uh, <laughs> a lot of opportunity out there yeah. right now. It might not be this way in five years, but right now there is a lot of opportunity. And I think that it, they're, you know, not necessarily, you're not necessarily going to get in with an arena band yeah. right out the gate, but there's a lot of opportunity 
for people who do want to work in the crew, uh, have a crew job, like there's so much opportunity right now that I'm just guessing, but people will show you the ropes. Whereas yeah. there was a time period where I think no one would show you the ropes. You just either, yeah. well, you just either figured it out on your own and like organically morphed into that position or not. But like, I think that people are so desperate now that it, I think that in a lot of situations, and again, I'm just guessing, but I'm guessing that in a lot of situations, if someone wants to learn how to do something, someone will show them because yeah. there's a lot, people are desperate for crew members. Yeah. And like you said, right now is the time too. And I think one of the important things for people to to understand too is, you know, uh, when I when I tell people or meet people and I tell them I work for bands and stuff, they assume because I work for bands that may have money or may be signed that I'm making a ton of money too. And don't get me wrong, I've gotten to a place in my career where financially we're, we're comfortable. Our bills are paid. I have nothing to complain about. But this is a career that you need to have some leeway when you first start out. Like I will be fully 100% open and honest. My first gig in this industry... 15 years ago was $50 per day. That was mm-hmm. my show pay. And as a 21-year-old care, 20-year-old kid, I mean, that was in a band where I was broke all the time. I was like, 50 bucks a day? I'm yeah. rich. Like I was, you know, if you can live like that, it's great. So I'd say right now is the best time for anybody that wants to get into the music industry to start. But don't don't expect that you're going to be making like 60 to $70,000 a year no. in an entry level position on the road. That is just unattainable when you're first starting out. It really is. No, but you can definitely, I mean, you can get to, you know, a few thousand dollars a week at For some sure. point there, those yeah. positions do exist. There is like, there is like a level of working on crew where you make actually a very sick living out of it. Mm-hmm. Like it, it takes some time to get there, but it is like, it is very possible. I know several people who have pulled it off. Yeah. So the, you know, the entry level, you're going to have to definitely prove your, prove yourself for a little while. But the, you know, there is a, there's a lot of upward uh, potential, I think. Yeah. And the music industry, just like any other industry is very small and people talk. So while you do have to kind of build that reputation at the start of your career, once you get to a certain point, people are going to be calling you. You're going to be somebody in the industry that uh, whether you're good at networking or somebody else sees you working, I can't tell you how many times, like almost every tour I've gotten in my career, like that's been a step up from what I was previously at was because I was working for like an opening band and somebody on the headlining crew saw me working and just decided we need somebody like that working for us. And that's what I'm kind of trying to get at is it's a small industry. People talk, people notice each other and people remember. So for me personally, for, for anybody that is thinking about getting into this industry, it did take maybe I don't know, four years until I got to a point financially where I would say I was comfortable. And then from there, you can really turn it into, like you said, like a, a good financial career. I mean, there are certain artists that I've I've been taking care of very well. I mean, to the point where 
I, I was making more money than I would at like a normal nine to five job or something like that. But the other thing to remember is that every situation and every single band is different. Just because you made X amount on one tour does not mean that you're going to go to another tour and make the same. Yeah. Hence why I think you need to have a certain amount of risk tolerance and mm -hmm. uh, just comfort with discomfort to survive music. Yeah, yeah. And sure. that, that's it in any, in any role, I think. Any role mm -hmm. in music besides... besides you know, the, uh, Okay, uh, let's actually... In the record industry, I think that you have to be comfortable with uh, discomfort, like any end of the record industry, whether it's on the touring end or whatever, or the production end. I think the, the one end of the, of the music industry where you might have a little more stability is like a professor at a university or someone in a professional cover band. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you want stability and you want to you wanna do well financially, become as good as you can at playing covers as possible yeah. and start a cover band and go play some weddings and... Uh, make money basically like yeah. if if like you want if you want a nor like a normal life but also music that's the path right there i mean a good a good example of that is like i know cover band musicians that play on broadway in nashville that are definitely doing better financially than some people in like signed bands oh yeah <laughs> like for sure oh, yeah i'm no not doubt. kidding i'm not kidding at all like yeah. if you don't care about being like an artist if you don't care about being in the record industry I guess I call it the music industry and the record industry are like, they're parallel, but different to me. Mm -hmm. and the music industry is like everything, like the, the music, I mean, the instruments, the education, the, like everything that, um, that doesn't have anything to do with being the artist or working directly for the artist or selling the artist's stuff. Mm -hmm. I make a distinction because I think it's, while they're parallel, they're very different in in what you're gonna encounter. But uh, but Tank, I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you very much for uh, taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I love your channel. And just thank you for putting the truth out there, dude. Thank you, man. I I appreciate that a lot. I mean. From somebody like you saying some of these things, I actually feel a lot better about doing some of this stuff on YouTube. So thank you, man. Oh, it's great. Don't stop. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I appreciate this time so much, man. Seriously, thank you for having me on. And uh, yeah, if you ever need anything, just let me know. Thank you very much. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALLEVYURM Audio at URM Academy and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.